Welcome to this episode of Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering with the goal of giving you the knowledge and the tools and the power to manage your energy. Welcome to this episode of Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering. I'm here today with Diego Mandelbaum, the VP of Development with Creative Energy. That's right. I get all that right. You name, got it. You got company, it. title. Right on. Good. You even pronounced the name right. Okay. It's a great name. I can't believe it's real. It's probably made up. Argentine Jewish. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Um, well, welcome. Um, welcome to this part of the world. I understand you're kind of a new resident of Southern Ontario. Is that right? This is correct. Okay. I uh, am a Torontonian as of September of last year. Okay, cool. So I just made my way over here from Vancouver. Okay, yeah. good. Well, sorry about the weather. Um, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's warm here and all my colleagues in Vancouver are snowed in right now. So I'm Oh, actually, that's right. Yeah, yes, so I'm laughing course. at all of them good. whenever I'm in good. conference calls. So was it a... Uh, if I may ask, was it a work-related move to, to move here or, or family or uh, what, what prompted you to leave beautiful uh, BC to come to uh, the GTA? I like the overpasses here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of concrete. It's, it's really the, nice. The traffic jams that go yeah, with it. Yeah. I enjoy traffic. It's listen okay. to more radio, Good. more advertisement. It's, no, it was uh, it was certainly a professional move. Okay, cool. Um, essentially, it was a I was a consultant in my past life and okay. Creative Energy was a client of mine. Yes. And I started working with them. They said, hey, we're trying to grow this business. We see a huge opportunity in Ontario. We want okay. to go scale the business and we want to grow in the GTA. We want to go open the office and, and lead that growth. No way. Okay. And uh, I said, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Great. Well, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. But first, um, from our research, you were a, I got to get this right, Toshido MMA. Is that, mm. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. So you were like a participant in that? I've I, I was a, so I was a mixed martial arts fighter for okay. a little while. Okay. Um, I was quite serious about it for a few years. Wow. And then as I started getting more into my engineering career yeah. and also had a bit of face surgery to fix some broken bones in there. No way. I realized I should probably make a choice of being an engineer or getting punched in the face. Okay. Uh, I made the engineering choice. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you miss it though? I, I, I do, but I, uh, I'm still quite active in the wrestling and jiu-jitsu side of it. Okay. I just said I don't want to get hit or kicked in the head anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm still in, on the mats about three or four times a week. Wow, good for yeah. you. And so you've found a community to kind of settle into here in, in Toronto with that activity. Oh, so certainly. Yeah, uh, okay. It took a little bit. I yeah. uh, went to a few gyms to find the right training okay. partners, some okay. bigger guys, but wow. found a good place here and got to get some good mat time. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's, so you got a way to keep your competitive juices flowing. Yep. It's yeah, my, my therapy. That's okay, cool. Um, so you mentioned it briefly, but you were one of us kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of before where you are now yes. um, with Stantec? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how long were you there? What kind of stuff were you doing? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I started with Stantec 2011 okay. in, right a, in a small town called Kamloops in British Columbia. Sure. Yeah. Uh, shortly after that, moved over to Kelowna, which is where I actually grew up, okay. also in British Columbia. Okay. And I was uh, I was leading the office in Kelowna, okay. uh, running a team of mechanical and electrical engineers working on buildings, particularly okay. in the institutional field. Okay. A lot of healthcare, a lot of education, yeah, some right industrial. On. Shortly, or I was there from 2011 till about 2017, okay. and then I was tapped on the shoulder to see if I wanted to move to Vancouver and take on a bit more of a provincial leadership role. Wow. Uh, and so I did that in 2017. Okay. I moved out that way, and I was one of five managing principals for the Buildings Engineering and Architecture Group. Wow. Which was about 300 to 350 uh, folks evenly divided between engineering and architecture. Okay. And we really worked on buildings of all sorts, from military bases to hospitals to industrial sites to private development. Wow. Uh, so for my curiosity perspective, I got to see a good cross sector yeah. of the economy actually. No kidding. And and was that like a you know big organization like Stantec, was that kind of a center of excellence for that or was that like a regional focus or um, like were you, were you working on stuff just on the west west coast or like no so, so we were a bit of both we were okay. on the west coast we were in British Columbia yeah that was the primary business we had yeah but we certainly had some expertise that was I would say a center of excellence that went global yeah uh, so from that group we worked on a billion dollar hospital in Qatar Doha Wow, uh, which was quite interesting. We were working on projects, particularly in the healthcare world across yeah. Canada, some in the states. Uh, the Department of National Defense was one of the major clients there, so we got to work on military bases across Canada. No way. Um, 
Actually, when I left there, we were looking at a project in Italy. So there was a lot of, I would say, brain power we got to export just because we had the certain critical mass there yeah, within cool. the group that was fairly far-reaching. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm following along, you're, 2011, you start at Stantec, and then by... 2017, 2018, you're in this kind of what, you call it managing principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sounds like a pretty uh, steep arc to your career. That, that's pretty, I, well, pretty impressive, well, I think. Well, thank you. But what happened? I, I found the guy who's in charge of all his decisions. I just gave him twenty bucks. Okay. And then it, like, yeah, the next day, I got a promotion. Yeah. Okay. Super good. easy. Great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for um, the uh, the CEM employees who are listening, it's maybe a bit more than twenty dollars. But that that approach would work here too. You know? It works most places. Yeah. So. Um, so but like, what do you attribute that to? Like, that, that is a you know, all joking aside, that is pretty impressive in a big organization like Stantec to get to that regional leadership role pretty quickly. Pretty well, quickly. I, I appreciate that. It's uh, there's probably three things I'd attribute to. Okay. One of them is is espresso. I've got an addiction. <laughs> I drink a lot of them. Yeah. It fuels me. Um, the other one is I was incredibly fortunate and lucky in terms of some of the mentorship I had. Okay. I happened to fall into uh, into being lucky enough to work with a couple of the folks who really had an impact on my career, yeah. both in terms of what I got to learn, but also advocacy within the company, which, okay. is, which is huge in a company that size. Yeah, yeah. Um, and lastly, I would say, actually, two more things. One is opportunity in terms of when I was in Kelowna. Uh, it had to be in a very bad moment for the office. There was no work. There was no people, no leadership. So okay. I was just by happenstance of timing. They yeah. said, hey, you're you know, the best we have. We don't okay. have the right person, but you want to take the role on. Oh, neat. Okay. Um, so right, right place at the right yeah, time kind of thing. That's yeah. right. Um, yeah. And then the, the other thing, too, I, I, the team I, I was able to work with, yeah. uh, that I don't want to say worked for me, I would say I worked for them. Yes. Uh, they were phenomenal. Cool. So they had my back. They, I would come out, I would go sell these crazy ideas, crazy yeah. timelines, crazy product, whatever it was. I'd turn around and say, hey, guys, this is what we have to do. And they just say, sure, let's do it. Cool. Um, Neat. Yeah. So I was incredibly lucky, I would say. And, and in the Kelowna role, so it was kind of, you were... You had both a business development role and a project execution that's role. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly and the work right. was mostly in that role was more more regional to Kelowna then. Yeah. So so it's interesting about a town. If you, anybody here watching knows the interior of British Columbia, yeah. if you live in Kelowna, you don't work in Kelowna. You work in the entire sort of interior region. Okay. Okay. And so the geography we covered really went, I would say, two hundred kilometer radius, maybe even more. Yeah. Uh, out to the the Caribou area, out to the Kootenay area, down to the Merritt area. Wow. And so I got to travel into every little small town BC nice. had to offer at least in that part of the world yeah 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 wow and did you when you moved into that role did Stantec give you I'm asking these questions kind of somewhat selfishly sure, as, we, sure. as we grow but um, did you um, were you given like training in that role was there a, you know a crash course in you know because now you're you're quickly confronted with um, you know managing people mm -hmm. and and projects and you know HR style you know the whole myriad yeah. of things right like how was Stantec in terms of you know, enabling you to succeed in that role? It, it was pretty good. So I mean, I mean, most of the learning really was uh, through mentorship and experience, and, yeah. and really screwing up. Yeah, um, that's one thing. I think I was the guy willing to make the most amount of mistakes. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I was that that guy. Yeah. Stantec did have some some conventional training for how to be a supervisor, how to okay. do, do some of the leadership things that you need to do. Not so much on the sales side, but was really a, a fantastic program they had. I don't know if they still have it or not. Uh, Every year they had what they would call the Emerging Leaders Program, which okay. was sort of a, a very narrow list of candidates who are sort of mid-level in the career, kind yeah. of with good potential. And they would bring in an executive coach that was generally more uh, towards a C-suite coaching, things like that. And it would be a one-year program where a group of about 20 people selected in Western Canada go once a month. They spend these three-day workshops and okay. really it teaches you everything about the softer side, the EQ, the, yeah, the communication yeah. styles, leadership, all the things that as, a, as an engineer by training, and I see your pinky ring, so yeah. I think you're one too, we don't really get taught that. Bingo, yeah, okay, um, cool. And that was that really had a good, a really good impact on me. Yeah. So Stantec certainly provided a lot of support there. Now the other piece that I think as engineers we don't get the best training on is, is you know, the business side and, no, and, and the, the sales side, right? And and you know there's there's kind of project development there's the big stuff at the elephant hunters but there's also in engineering particularly consulting there's this notion of a seller doer like yes two i guess two-part question what 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 set you on that road in terms of um seeing that that was something you needed to do 
Um, and, and two, you know, was it just a learning by doing or, or how did you get, you know, comfortable and, and equipped to do it? Yeah, that's a heck of a question. Um, the one thing I realized when I was fairly young in my career, I thought, you know, if I want to grow up in this company or, or get to establish my resume, I want to be leading these projects. Yeah. Uh, when I was in EIT, they would say, well, you're not experienced enough. You don't have this or you don't have that. And so then in my mind, I said, well, the easiest way to become a project manager is by go winning my own work. It's uh -huh. really hard to say, okay. hey, guys, I brought in all this money here and all these clients, but I can't lead this project uh -huh. now. Cool. So I figured I'll go win some work. I did. Nice. And then nobody really contested that. Uh -huh. And from there, it grew. And I kind of liked what it felt like to be able to go get your own clients, build a business. You get to like go hire people. And then you get to hopefully manage their expectations. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it naturally progressed. But just to your point about the seller-doer, I'm a strong believer that that is the way that uh, both consultants and even in my industry, that is the way to provide value. Yeah. I, I, I don't like the detachment of the business development or sales to the engineering. Yeah. I think they are fundamentally intertwined. Well, and certainly from the perspective of the client, um, you know, that handover, if there is a discrete handover between sales and execution, that's a potential for a lot of stuff to get missed, right? So if there's continuity from who, you know, who initiates the work to who executes it, uh, ultimately, the, the biggest benefactor in my my experience is is the the end client, right? They they, they benefit from that continuity throughout, right? Absolutely. And, and then what I say, because I I spend a lot of time developing business myself, so I can say this, but what I say to our teams is, um, you know, the clients don't really want to talk to me anyways, mm -hmm. right? They want to talk to the person that's going to be executing the work, yeah. right? Um, so and so we're in our the reason I'm, I'm kind of digging deep on this is selfish, like I said, because we're trying to move towards a more diversified um, kind of way that work business comes into the office. It's still a lot of elephant hunting, mm -hmm. you know, two or three individuals. And we're, we have a phenomenal team that I, like, like you, I think can easily go and get the work and come back and execute it. So I appreciate you uh, kind of sharing your insights in, 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 into the early career of Diego. And, and sure, that level. sure. And, and I would maybe just correct. I don't think I can easily do both those things. I can easily do those if I have a good team supporting yeah. me and a good cool. mentor helping me. So I, uh, I've been very lucky. I want to make sure that the folks who supported me are, are getting yeah, right on. So uh, on that notion of, of mentoring, like you, you, you quickly pointed that out as a, as a, as an impetus for your career. What, what, what did it take for that? Like what, what circumstances, uh, allowed that to happen? I, my sense is it's a two way street, but, but talk to me about, you know, what were the, what situation was created that allowed that to, to kind of happen for you? Sure, sure. And it's uh, looking back, the way that I saw it, because I, I got to fairly quickly be from a position where I was always trying to get mentorship to being able to give back a little bit. I mean, I still to this day have some mentors that I look up to. Cool. Um, but what I found, and I noticed this as I've become a mentor to some of the folks that I worked with back at Stantec, um, there's mm -hmm. a lot of younger folks who say, this is what I want to do. And you say, okay, great. How are you going to get there? And they, they say, well, you've got to change my utilization or you've got to shift my job description so I can go do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, the answer is no, no, that's, that's not your job. Your nine to five job is to do what's in your job description. Right. Over and above that, go find a way to develop business, to uh -huh. go develop technical standards, go do whatever it is that, that really pa you're passionate about. But that's, that's your self-development. Yeah. Um, and I found most of the engineering folks I would deal with kind of looked at it and said, well, no, I want to be at home doing whatever after five. Uh -huh. okay. um, not everybody, but yeah, yeah. I was one of those people who said, no, I, I get it. My my 50 hour a week work week is my, my job is in sure. EIT, go design, go do this. And everything else I'm going to do will be over and above it. Yeah. And I think because I would do that, there was a lot of uh, senior folks said, hey, look, this guy's got a little bit more fire to, to put in the hours and to learn some things outside of what we're asking him. Yeah. So let's try to harness that a little bit. Okay. Okay. And so, so you demonstrate an initiative and a desire, and then the mentors see that, and then they make themselves kind of available for you know ongoing mentoring. I, I, th I think so. Yeah. And listen, the other the other reality of it is too is we're we're engineers and consultancy. You're surrounded by engineers. My persona in a legal firm probably wouldn't differentiate myself. My uh -huh. persona in an engineering firm, yeah. all of a sudden, I'm a little bit different. So interesting. I think, yeah. uh, and I think you talking to you seem like you're also fairly outgoing, yeah. extroverted. I think because we happen to be in an engineering role, which is mostly the opposite, we get to have uh, a differentiating quality yeah, because of that. Yeah. That you may not have if you're in the finance or, right. or legal world or accounting world, because yeah. you have a lot of those type of people. Yeah, yeah. I also think that with mentorship, like th there's there's this aspect of both sides. There has to be a, a, a level of kind of humility and willingness, right, on both sides, the mentor, but also the mentee to say, you know, 
I don't know everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I need, and, and I, I think that's something that when you're early on, I know for me when I was early on in my career, I think it's easy to kind of fall into a, a sense of confidence and you, you have a couple early wins. Um, but, you know, was that hard for you or, or, or did you always have that, you know, desire to learn and that humility to say, you know, teach me, I'm, 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 an op- I'm, a, I'm a sponge here kind of thing? I've, I've always been a very inquisitive person. Okay. Uh, and so I've always had that desire. I've realized as I as I progress my career and arguably learn more and more, I become less confident uh-huh. and realize I know less and less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I remember when I graduated engineering, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world, that everybody should hire me, that I could do all this math, that you know, you're not gonna find anybody else like me. And now I realize, wow, there's a lot of smart people out there and there's yeah. a lot I don't know. So I've got to be very humble to to uh, try to uh, to absorb what I can from yeah. the other folks. Around our shop, we call that a healthy dose of fear. Right? You, you, yeah. Have, yeah. You, know, you, you know where your skills are and where you need help beyond that. So. Yeah, and it's almost that learning curve of first, you, you don't know what you don't know, and then right. you know what you don't, or don't right. know, then you, it progresses on that yeah. way, and then it cycles and back. Then, and then you get to the point where you've forgotten more. Yeah, and then, yeah, 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 yeah. So before we leave uh, the Stantec phase of your career, because really we want to talk about creative energy, but is there a project that sticks out to you or an achievement where you're like, yeah, that was, you know, we, we, did, we did some really good work there. Or, you know, you look back and you think that was a special time. Yeah, I would say there's two. One of them is not a project. One of them was more of a, a long-term plan of being able to revitalize the office in Kelowna. Right. Um, yeah. Just because when I went there, it was uh, due to some economy and some, some past projects. It was not doing very well. It was a very small market. It was a, a group that needed work from, from abroad. Yeah. Um, and it was not profitable. I was given a shot with two people working with me, and we we scaled that up to about fourteen people in a wow. very short amount of time, or twelve people. I can't remember exactly. Good for you. Um, no, and again, it wasn't me though. It was the, sure. there was the team there, but that was that was probably the most fun I've had in my career. Cool. It was a true sense of a team that yeah. we all were on the same mission. They weren't big, exciting projects. There was nothing that you'd get published in a magazine for. Yeah. But we all had this uh, the shared goal of let's go revitalize the office, and I think it worked. Yeah. Cool. Um, and actually, one of my really good friends. Uh, and ex-colleagues is now running that oh, team fun. there. Nice. And I think he's doing a phenomenal job. Cool. Yeah, good. Um, from a project perspective, I'd say the project that really sticks out for me is a project I did with Tom Cernervers University. Okay. And ironically, we're now working with them again, oh, looking at doing some district energy work with them. Okay. Uh, but it was the new industrial training technology center that okay. was developed a couple years ago, and it was really a, a sophisticated trades building. Yeah. Part of the project was to put in a, a central heating plant that would be low carbon and not only heat that building, but backfeed the adjacent building that was about four times larger okay. and offset their natural gas and have some two-way energy sharing for resiliency purposes. Yeah. Um, getting that project off the ground, there's all sorts of hoops financially, uh, yeah. politically, um, and there was we had a biomass plant there that did not go through council due to okay. some sensitivities on the local air pollution piece of it. Okay. Uh, so we ended up doing an electric solution where it was a small district system to heat and then backfeed another building. It did some energy sharing. We had a lot of folks tell us it's the wrong way to do it. It's yeah. super expensive. And it was really the, the client, Thompson Rivers University, they had a conviction of what sustainability meant to them to mm. do it, even though it may have cost them more. Uh, we made it past all the hoops, even though we had our product managers telling us not to do it. We had boards telling us not to do it. We had BC Hydro telling us not to do it, at the same time incentivizing us. <laughs> <laughs> and after it was done, it worked really well. We, uh, unfortunately, the startup we had an issue, so we actually got to see the, the back feeding of the energy sources work. Oh, nice. And work well, so yeah. the resiliency piece sort okay. of checked the box. Cool. Uh, and it really got a ton of publicity and started them on their way of the sort of electrification and decarbonization plan it was a really fun project. Not yeah. the most uh, technologically sophisticated project, but okay. the process to get there was yeah. a lot of fun, and we've gotten a chance to present at a few conferences on it oh, now cool. as well. And excuse my ignorance, but lo- where is it located? Oh, it's uh, sorry, Kamloops, British Columbia. Kamloops. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, apologies to those and to our listeners in Kamloops uh, for my ignorance. Of, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that's the. In Toronto, we think that the uh, the axis of the world kind of right, comes through the middle of Toronto. So we're in the center of the universe. Yeah, that's right. Moving here. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, so the you the, the source of, of heat is electric. It is okay. electric and electric resistive. Okay. Uh, and, and the reason, and that's where we got a lot of pushback. Because as, okay. as an engineer, I cringed yeah. a little bit. I said, yeah. I, I don't want to do this. Yeah. We were tying to an existing high temp system. Okay. It was designed the whole time to be a biomass uh, yeah. plant, so low carbon and yeah. high temp. Yeah. Uh, the building started getting built. We were having a separate plant there, prefabricated. We had the designs ready. We had the pricing in. 
council had a bylaw that said thou shall not use outdoor wood-fired boilers okay. and that was referring to the more backyard boiler sure right very familiar with it so yeah. we went to council we said guys we sustainability is what we're really pushing here this is why we did the emission study their quality testing all that stuff we showed them the science that it works well they said we agree went to council they rescinded that bylaw okay we were super happy we we're cool. ecstatic we're celebrating yeah, yeah. protest then subsued outside of the city hall oh. there was an emergency council meeting they rescinded the rescinding of the bylaw oh. and we then had a building that had no space in it for a boiler plant there's no right. program area left to carve it out there yeah uh, and so we said well heck we'll put a, a little uh, natural gas prefab plants on a hill somewhere and tie it up and that's yeah. where TRU said or Thompson Rivers University yes. said no we won't we are committed okay. to, to sustainability and if that wow. means we're going to pay two times or three times in rates we yeah. will do that wow uh, now this is actually maybe a piece that's that's interesting to talk on what got us the buy-in we needed there because we had a lot of people saying you're crazy you're spending three times more on electricity all yeah. these things yeah was the way we defined a business case mm. and and what i mean by that is initially when folks were coming to us and saying you're going to spend three times more than you would if you put in a gas plant there mm -hmm. we said that's short sure but that's not the business case we're defining okay the definition was the university made a commitment to decarbonize the campus the ghg offsets we would have by going with that route yes if you look at where else you could say get that same reduction in ghg elsewhere in the campus yeah and the money you would spend aha uh -huh. it was far more than the spark spread aha uh -huh. and so when you redefined it that way and you said if yeah. we're going to save this many kilograms of or tons of ghg a year and we don't want to do it here we don't want to pay that annual premium on utilities where else can we do it all of a sudden that business case equalized out a little bit so you reframed the so, so the comparison initially was a straight business case of, you know, electric boilers, essentially, yep. right? Um, with a significant premium on the fuel. Mm -hmm. um, you comparing that against a, uh, a cheap, dirty, dirty, uh, by comparison, sure. um, uh, fuel and, and, and the CapEx associated, I would imagine, right? And so, so and it wasn't actually, the, the CapEx was about the same, it was, it was the OPEX. OPEX. Okay, yeah, so the, the, OPEX. The, the, the two side by side, the OPEX of the natural gas obviously makes more sense. It's about a three-time multiplier in BC. Yeah. Well, sorry, uh, traditionally it'd be about a three-time multiplier uh, because they already purchased some offsets in renewable natural gas, it was actually okay. only about a two-time multiplier. Okay, interesting. But you step back and you say, no, 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 that, that comparison option isn't, it's just not a viable option. We have to set it aside because the, the campus has this conviction. So then you compare it to, you, if I'm understanding correctly, you take the GHG reductions, mm -hmm and you say where else can we get that mm -hmm. and, and the dollars per G, ghg yeah. dollars per ton of yep. ghg reduction compared to a portfolio of other projects this was the that that's how you that that's okay. precisely it and, wow. and part of that rationale is because the past 10 years uh, the university and myself included spent time going building by building trying to optimize trying to replace boiler plants right. doing what we could yeah and so the i would say the energy efficiency measures were really exhausted it yeah. really came down to you have to fuel switch yeah uh, which is what i'm finding holistically now is yeah. energy reduction measures are great but they're not going to get us to where people say we have to get to but they do one of the things that we talk about in our office is you know and and you know our founder martin you know will say he learned this in, in his you know in the early 80s at, at mcmaster that you, when you look at energy and energy management, you start at the point of use, right? Mm -hmm. And you f and you deal with it there first, and then you deal with the distribution, and then you deal with the generation, and, and in that order. And, and and we've come into sites where, you know, the, the point of use is just you know there's steam going everywhere, but they want to put in cogen, and we, we <laughs> you know we love cogen. Don't get me wrong, or we, we love yeah, you know, you we love new generation projects in general. But it's not the right but, thing. But it's not the right thing, yeah. right? And so it sounds like in this context, they had done all that stuff. And now it was, you know, there really, there was no more low-hanging fruit there. It was all about, we got to get right to the source yep. and, and do a fuel switch, and it was the right thing to do. It. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't disagree with that concept or strategy at all. I, I do think, go find out where can we reduce things. Yeah, you had uh, already done it here. Yeah, it and you've like. done it. Yeah. And then uh, I think this is maybe later in this conversation, but there's a bigger discussion holistically now uh, as we're looking at building codes and policies, both in Ontario and B.C., how much onus do you put on the reduction versus on the supply when yeah. you're looking at envelope? And I would argue, uh -huh. as we're looking at, say, the step code in British Columbia, or even some of the thermal intensity demand or thermal energy demand intensities here in the Toronto Green Standard, I think we're starting to push the envelope requirements too far. We're not actually being the most economical we can if we're trying to reduce GHGs. Uh huh. But Interesting. That might be going okay. down yeah, a yeah, another yeah, path. Okay. But let's, uh, let's put a pin in that. Yeah, and come back yeah. to that. 
So you have this, we're good to keep going? Yeah. Perfect. So you have this illustrious career, burgeoning career at Stantec. Uh, and, and how do you get from there to Creative Energy? Tell us that story. I will. So I, I got to, when I moved to Vancouver, I got to know Creative Energy from a very similar industry. Okay. Uh, we design buildings. They, yes. Or we now, I guess. Uh, we heat them. Okay. Or cool them. Gotcha. Or in some cases, power them. Okay. A lot of overlap there. And I just had a natural uh, interest in that business. I see. Uh, the technical passion in me, I always like designing central plants, whether that was for a hospital, for a university, or for a district system. So I was just taken away about the business of creative energy, what they did, gotcha. uh, the aspirations. I uh, got to know one of my colleagues now, okay. Kieran McConnell, who's our vice president of projects and engineering. Okay. Uh, I talked him into letting me work for him or for okay. them as a consultant and doing some oh. some work on biomass design for a retrofit of our, our central plant downtown Vancouver, Okay. which I'll get into after. Yeah. I was doing some of that work, which was a lot of fun. And so, the, then so at this point, they're a client of At this of point, Stantec. they're a client yeah, okay. of Stantec. Uh, going through that process, and then I had a cryptic lunch or invite from our admin saying the CEO would like to have lunch with you. Aha. Uh -huh. I assumed we're either getting fired, sued, or they're offering me a job. Right, okay. Uh, did not get fired or sued. Okay, and excellent. Explains what creative energy is, some yeah. of the shifts, what we're looking to do over the next five years, and really aspirationally what it can become, the vision. Yeah. Uh, I would say that was pretty much cool. happening at that lunch. Okay. And home base is Vancouver for creative? Energy? For creative? Right now it is. Okay. okay. Uh, ask us that in about five years' time. I think okay. we might say Toronto. Okay. So you have lunch, you don't get sued or fired. Yes. You. Fast forward, you, you kind and of a client bought me lunch at the time. So yeah, that was that there you phenomenal. go. There you go. Um, so, so you join the team. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell tell us about you know. Let's step back for a minute and frame the discussion. Like, tell us about creative. You know, brief history, kind of what you guys do, what you're about, uh, how you're different. Just. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Open up the floor. Uh, so I'm going to go way back. I'll, I'll keep it brief, but I think it's uh, there's an irony here that I think will not be lost on you or your okay. viewers. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> so Creative Energy was started back in in the 60s, and okay. so back in the 1960s, downtown Vancouver, fundamentally different than what it is today. Yeah. There was a real pollution and smog issue, and that was because every building had fuel oil boilers or coal mm. boilers. Yeah. And so at the time, a group of local business people said, "Hey, we've got this phenomenal idea." It's the sustainable way of the future, natural gas. Uh -huh. And so at the time, in the 60s, natural gas was a sustainable fuel. Yes. They purchased an old Vancouver Press building. Yeah. They retrofitted it with some very large natural gas steam boilers. They connected a couple buildings, and that was the start of the company. Okay. So this is... 60s? In the 1968 so, so is when we had our first, uh, sold our first BTU. Wow. Okay, cool. And so <clears throat> that's what started. Yeah. And it was, it's ironic because at the time sustainability was natural gas. Today we're yeah. actually figuring out how to get off, off of natural of gas. Yes, and, yes. and I mean that in that exact same plant. Cool. Um, but over time that grew and grew and grew from one building to two buildings to three and four and five. And then we had some very marquee customers connect to us okay. like St. Paul's Hospital. Okay. Uh, the stadium down there. We... I would say just about every core building in downtown Vancouver is yeah. uh, is connected to our plant. And then in 2014, there was a shift in ownership. Okay. And with the new ownership came a totally new vision. Okay. What happened up until that time, it was really a single asset that had more more customers connected to it. I see. And that okay. was the business. Okay. With the new ownership, it was that is no longer the business. We want to A, decarbonize that plant. Okay. But B, we want to scale this thing 15, 20 times in size. We want to go across Canada, maybe even the States. Okay. And we want to develop low carbon district energy projects yeah. and yeah. really have an impact. Okay. Um, so that happened in 2014. Obviously it takes a long time to repurpose sure. a company. Yeah. Uh, but we're now starting to see that come in. So we are, our current CEO joined us about two years ago. And okay. that's a gentleman who's got, uh, I think is about as qualified for the roles you can have or be. Then uh, he brought me on here. Okay. I've just opened up the office. And so now it's actually starting to progress. We've got a whole bunch of new projects in development, nice. which is really exciting for because for 50 years, we were a single 280 megawatts, so large, but single yeah. asset. Yeah. Okay. So kind of your main core business is, is district energy. Yes. Essentially. You have this anchor plant that is going from natural gas to something yes uh, which we probably we'll talk about um and then you know on the backs of that operating history there's a desire to 
to grow the business. Canada, North America, is there bounds around that or? We're boundless. Boundless, uh, okay. However, yes. strategically right now, Canada is the focus, particularly the GTA area okay. and a little bit further in British Columbia, but yeah. we really see the GTA as a, as a fantastic opportunity. Okay. After that, we'll probably look at going down south, and we're actually looking at a few opportunities there already. Okay. Uh, and then after that, we'll see what happens. But yeah. that's uh, from our strategic perspective. That's really what we see: is let's let's start BC and Ontario. Uh, we'll get into other parts of Canada, and then go down south. And we're really seeing the plan coming together. I would say uh, quicker than we thought. Yeah. So you have fifty years in Vancouver in one plant. So I would imagine they've given you lots of runway in Toronto to. Uh, to, to like what, what's that what's the plan what's the goals like what's what is because district energy development um, is not for the faint of heart uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's not a quick you know kind of process it's a it's a lengthy process talk to me about you know you're, you've opened the office what's your plan vision have you had some early successes like how, how are we doing here in Toronto yeah sure uh, so you, you're right I mean it's not for the faint of heart. There yeah. are long processes to get a project off the ground. There's multiple stakeholders. There's many competing priorities. There's a very yeah. strong technical piece of it, very strong economical piece of it, uh, which is sort of part of the fun as well. What we found in Toronto is that we have Mervish Village as our first project here. Okay. And so that project has helped give us a bit of credibility. So that would, I would say is our catalyst into this market. Okay, cool. Uh, and then coming out here, being able to leverage the expertise that we have from 50 years, 50 plus years now of operating experience. Yeah. So we have, I mean, just for context, we have 220 customers connected there with 14 kilometers of piping. Wow. And can show over the last 50 years, 99.99% reliability. We've, nice. We've been down for less than an hour. Wow. Uh, so that is that gives us a little bit of credibility coming out here to say we're not new at this. We're not just coming yeah. out here and saying we've got some financial backing, we can build things. Yeah. We're saying we have all that, but we actually have the expertise yeah. um, and we're trying to innovate as well. We're, we don't want to just go around doing conventional boiler projects. We want to see what's what's interesting out there. Right, right. Coming out here, what I'm finding is, A, there's a huge market for it because we don't have a whole lot of competition here. Obviously, mm. the incumbent here is N-Wave and yes. I think they've done some really good things. They've yes. got a phenomenal deep lake system. I, uh, you're not going to hear anything bad come out of my mouth right. about them. I think they've done yeah. great things for the industry. Agreed. Uh, but you don't really find that there's a whole lot of other folks doing what we do in terms of being able to come and say, we are an energy developer. We will come design, build, own, operate, de-risk this thing, take the capital off your development hands, um, and then hopefully sell low-carbon energy at a cost-competitive rate. Yeah. So coming from a consulting background, I would say it was incredibly competitive yeah. to what we do now, where we're, I would say, more of a niche. Yeah. That's been really interesting and fun. Yeah. The mm. the difference, I would say, is more in the, I don't want to say sales process, but in how quick things turn around. If you're a consultant, yeah. you look at an opportunity, you might take a few months and you might be successful. Here, I'm, I'm looking with a development partner at two sites right now. It might be three years before we have a shovel in the ground, yeah. or two years. Yeah, but, right, totally. And the bigger the project, the more it will yeah. normally take. Um, we're looking at an opportunity, for example, in, in British Columbia, the city of New Westminster has put out an expression of interest for a DE partner. Okay. They've started looking at that in 2011. Wow. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. We can move very quick, but a yeah. lot of times it's the stakeholders outside of our control, which really make the bigger, these big developments take time. Yeah. So, <laughs> chuckle a little bit, because for us, organizationally, you know, having served so many industrials, we've, we've done district energy work, we've done it in London with the hospitals, and, and, and we've done it with Hamilton Community Energy, but um, it is a, you know, when, when you compare it to industrials who live quarter to quarter, you know, that's a lot more fast making, you know, either uh, shit or get off the pot. And uh, oh, we, we can swear on this. Uh, we can. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's a it, it's, it's been tough for us, but we also know that, you know, long term, it's an area we want to stay involved in and get involved in. So um, you mentioned a, a project already in, in Toronto, Mervish. Yeah. Mervish yeah. Village. Tell, tell us about that. Sure. So Mervish Village, it's on the corner of Bathurst and Bloor Street. Okay. So right it's on. the redevelopment of the iconic Mervish Village and Honest Ed site. Yeah. Okay. And so what's happening there, there's going to be about five towers and just under a million square feet of purpose-built rental. Okay. Um, and actually just yesterday it was released publicly that there has been some federal funding for affordable housing there. So it's a really cool. good news story wow. outside of the energy piece, just for the yeah. society. Yeah. Uh, and that's also our, our first project that we're looking at a district, uh, pro- or not looking, we're, we're doing. We yeah. expect our, our first piece of equipment to actually touch base in the next couple months. Cool. And 
we also took a, an electrical run at that as well, which okay. was our first, but hopefully not our last. And so that project, from a technological perspective, yeah. we are supplying, uh, from a service perspective anyways, we're supplying thermal energy, cooling energy, or heating energy, cooling energy, electricity, and electrical uh, emergency power as well. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So we're pretty much the wholesale uh, utility or energy provider for the site. So there's a load there already? Like, you, it's a development project, but is there existing load? There's not. Okay. So this is, we're developing with that. Okay. They wow. are That site is essentially our anchor yeah. to establish a thermal network, establish our initial assets there, and then we hope to expand to the greater okay. community, find more nodes. Um, but that project's really interesting because it is, uh, from the thermal side, it's, we're getting the base load from a CHP machine. Cool. Uh, so we're doing that, providing space heating, domestic water heating, snow melting. Yeah. From the cooling side, it's a fairly conventional centrifugal chiller, some okay. cooling towers. Okay. Down the road, we want to look at how we can add some storage and we can add some heat recovery as we expand and find some more nodes. Nice. Uh, but the electrical side is, is, to me, super interesting. We are the electrical utility for that site. And so essentially, we will buy some power from the from the greater utility. Yes. We generate on-site through a CHP machine and through a solar array, which is a five or ten percent of the energy. Okay. Uh, and then we own the microgrid that distributes that site. Yes. And then we get to give the power to all the to all the buildings there. What's What's interesting? There's two things that really made sense for us, or, or three things. One, the CHP is something that made the project economical for us. Okay. Because of the spark spread, it let us move that forward and keep the rates competitive. Yeah, nice. Uh, and affordability and resiliency were probably the driving factors for that project. Uh, the other one is because we're aggregating all the buildings, we now have the opportunity to purchase power at Class A rates and sell uh -huh. at Class B rates. Uh -huh. uh, and then on Additionally, because we are the emergency power suppliers, we opted to pay the premium to go with natural gas generators. Yeah. Um, so we can actually use those for curtailment as well for okay. GA, yeah. uh, GA busting or, okay. or trying to offset so that. So that, that electricity piece is quite interesting. So mm -hmm. you, you as creative, have a, you're a new load customer with Toronto Hydro? Yes. And, and you're also a distributed generator? That's right. Uh, we can talk about that process in a minute. Or, or, sorry, I should be careful. I, I know we're... We spent a lot of legal work trying to figure out what we are and what we are yeah. not from a regulatory perspective. So yeah. I don't know the exact term, but I will say we are only within the parcel and the property line because as soon as we cross yes, the property right. line, we have some regulatory okay. burden that was not worthwhile. So, Agreed. Um, I, so, so, but you are, you're going to have the your relationship with Toronto Hydro, and then you're going to have a, a another relationship with. The developer, or like with the operator of the buildings, Oper okay, yeah, yes. uh, and it really will be the developer because okay. they are purpose-built rental. Gotcha. And so you're going to have, you know, four or five meters, depending on how many towers there are, and that's kind of how it's going to work. That's exactly yeah, how it's okay. going to work. Yes. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. And we take the GA risk as well. So if we okay. if uh, we were sleeping at the wheel and we yeah. missed a, a peak and we paid for that, that's our risk. Okay. Um, and. Do you have, are you signing long-term contracts with these uh, purpose-built rentals or you're going to pass through the, you're taking the risk, so it sounds like you're giving them a, a fixed price for a duration of a contract? Or? We give a, so the way we, we, and this is fairly typical most utility models, yes. as I'm sure you're aware, we have a, a fixed and a variable price yes. uh, regime where the fixed price is essentially to recover our, our capital. Yep. And then the variable is the flow-through cost in terms gotcha. of commodities, whether it's it's water for a cooling tower, electricity, natural yes. gas we purchase. Um, but we do have to commit on the on the GA peaking. We have to take some of the risk on that as well as the plant efficiency. Yeah. Okay. And gotcha. so if we end up operating that plant uh, far less efficiently than we thought, right. we're the ones paying for that, not yeah. our customers and not gotcha. our users. Right. Um, so that's that's sort of that division from a term life. We own the assets in perpetuity. That's our yes. business. Uh, we're flexible. There's times we might look at a concessionaire agreement, but okay. typically speaking, we those are our assets. We'll yeah. own them in perpetuity, but we'll enter into long-term service agreements that are generally ranging from 20 to 30 years, uh, which various bio, different clauses to give people peace of mind in case there's a uh, rockiness in the relationship, which yeah. there generally isn't. Uh, so that's the way that one looks, but typically what we see, and we see this in Vancouver all the time, our customers want to renew. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They say, why Why would I want to go and, and have our own assets, take up our own space, operate our own plants? Our core business is operating a rental space or whatever Bingo. whatever it is. Yeah. And our core business is supplying good, renewable, and resilient energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about the technology, and then I want to come back to the... the kind of environmental piece. Mm -hmm. The technology, can you tell us a bit about the, the CHB configuration, what what technology, size, that kind of stuff? Sure, sure. Uh, 
and I, I'm not going to give you, or I won't be able to give you all the details, so I don't know it off the top sure. of my head, but we've got about a megawatt, as I understand, okay, of, cool. of CHP nice. there, which covers roughly our base load, and okay. then we've got a few hundred kilowatts of solar, so cool. that's on the electrical side. Yeah. Uh, I the CHP is a single machine, two machines? Single machine. Okay. Yeah, single machine. Caterpillar, Yenbacher? Uh, Siemens. Siemens. Oh, wow. Siemens. Cool. Yep. Nice. The new, okay. Yeah. Fun. Siemens. Okay. Um, I think I put, it's funny, I posted something on LinkedIn about when we ordered the machine. Yes. And I guess our contractor was talking to a few people and I got a call from one of the unsuccessful vendors saying, uh, hey, I thought we were getting that oh. call. I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not the project manager. <laughs> right. I, cool. I think I put my foot in my mouth. Okay. So that, so are you, is, are you going to be done and the load will be there already? Or like, I don't know a lot about multi-res development, but I, my sense is it takes a while. Like, are you going to be built and the load will be there or? We will, uh, no. So we will be built and the load will come very shortly after. Okay. Uh, the typical process, if we're working with a development partner and we say, we want you guys to be done and then we'll energize, yeah. they're going to laugh us out of the room. And so we actually have to be there first and yeah. we have to make absolute certain that we're never the critical path. I see. Okay. Uh, we, you know, f to a developer, if you introduce risk, that's, yeah. that's the worst thing. So luckily we're rare, actually we're never that critical path. So we will be done our piece far before occupancy. So we'll be able to energize commission, do those things. Yeah. And then the load will probably come in months or a year after. Right. Uh, but it's a very short time window and we do have that load certainty, which is how we were able to move that project forward. But you're, you're sitting on capital that won't be seeing a return for a period of time right? for a few months yeah, a few yeah. Months. okay yeah okay. so yeah. it's uh that's right yeah so coming so coming in and, and, and i should mention this is the way that we do our rate developments our performance uh that's all taken into account gotcha. as well to make okay. sure the economics work out. Yeah, yeah yeah gotcha okay so um you know coming to ontario similar to bc um you know there is a like how does the GHG emissions, if you look at it from a, there are different ways to cut this pie, but I guess my question is, from the perspective of the developer and the perspective of creative, a job like that where you're burning incremental gas mm -hmm. on a site basis, mm -hmm. uh, how do you look at that from a GHG perspective? Does, does the developer you know, handle that? Do you handle it? Talk to us a bit about, you know, especially contrasting it with your you know your campus story from mm -hmm. um, prior. How do you? How does this measure up against that? Sure, sure. And maybe there's a few different questions. Yeah, that I'll, I'll yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. So I think the first thing you said is how does BC and Ontario stack up from that GHG conversation? Yeah, I, I see them as similar, but but go, well, it, I don't have the same perspective you do. So. And I don't think they are at the provincial level. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm going to try not to get political here because I yeah. think that's uh, yeah, yeah. something we'll keep to ourselves. But politically, there's far more leadership in British Columbia than there is mm. in Ontario at the provincial level. Okay. Uh, you look at British Columbia, they've released what they call the step code, which is a fairly uh, defined process of how we can get to net zero or net zero ready in a very short amount of time. Okay. You look at the Ontario building code, there's not a whole lot there other than saying be a few percent better than ASHRAE. Okay. Uh, so provincially, uh -huh. there's far more leadership there. Okay. Uh, there's also the Clean BC Action Plan, which is looking at not just buildings, but how we electrify buses and how we electrify vehicles okay. and how we electrify ferries, so yeah. on and so forth. Uh, so at the provincial level, fundamentally different. Where it becomes a lot more similar is at the municipal level. Uh, so if you compare Toronto and you compare Vancouver, Vancouver and Toronto both have bylaws that go over and above your okay. provincial okay. regulations, yeah. and they're both very aggressive. Right. Uh, and I actually, this is a, I'm, I'm a bit of a bigger fan of Toronto's policy because they actually put a limit on carbon, whereas you look at the step code in British Columbia, I, I support the step code, I think it's a phenomenal step forward, uh, but it measures energy reduction for the most part and okay. energy efficiency, but yeah. it is silent on carbon. And I'm sort of of the belief that if we as a society want to reduce carbon, we should make sure that that's one of the metrics we have to hit. Right, right. Um, so, anyway, so that that's sort of the okay. contrast. No, that's great contrast. Thank you. Uh, and I also would say that I've seen British Columbia maybe be a few years ahead of Ontario in terms yes. of what it's done and, and just culturally yeah. on that front. Uh, so that answers hopefully that first yeah, piece of your yeah, question. Yeah. The, the second piece is Mervish Village and how does, what, what does CHP look like in today's sort of utility and carbon era? That's a lot more concise way of asking the question. Thank you. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've thought about this question yeah, a lot yeah. because it's, uh, it's a question we, we have to answer. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at this project, I think that we started this project in 2013. If you remember those that era, it yes. was a very different conversation. Totally. Uh, both around carbon, but also around CHP. CHP at the time was a very favorite technology in the province. There yep. was incentive money for it. Yep. Uh, and so 
that was a very different atmosphere for that to begin with. And then the other thing, when we put the project together and sat down with all the stakeholders, there's three driving themes and really in this order. First was affordability. Mm. This is affordable housing and purpose-built rental. Gotcha. Uh, so that is number one. Yeah. The second was resiliency. Okay. And then the third was sustainability from a carbon perspective. Um, okay. I say carbon because I kind of use sustainability in a greater sense that yeah. includes triple bottom line type of analysis. Right. Uh, and so when you look at that, we did obviously examine what does a geothermal system look like in there? What are the different options we can look at? Yeah. But to make the economics work, CHP is what established okay. it. And cool. it was really because of that spark spread, if you look at what the gas prices are and what the electricity prices yeah, are. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, so that's that's the decision-making process we got there. And yeah. it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say funny, but it's interesting if we want to stop using natural gas, you look at that spark spread, we have to close that spread. Yeah. And that's where I think carbon policy is gonna play into account, whether it's carbon taxation or things like the Toronto Green Standard that says this is your carbon intensity per building and right. you can't go more than that. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, but without those, you're sort of asking the, the developer or the users really at the end of the day to pay additional money but based on their own goodwill, right. which I think public sector institutions will do. That's, yes. that's their role for yes. a large part. Yes. Uh, I don't think we're going to see that from affordable housing or from right. private developers. No, um, no. So that, that's a little bit of the context there. From yeah. an actual carbon accounting perspective, um, at the time when we submitted to the city, I think the carbon accounting on our site came down about 5% lower than business as usual collectively. Okay. Uh, now keep in mind that there was other energy measures in there such as solar and okay. such as yeah. uh, we spent quite a bit of money on having a very, very efficient chiller, okay. things like that. So compared to business as usual, we were a little bit lower and we were, we were certified under the TGS version two, uh, I forget the T or the, uh, sorry, version two, tier one, two. And so we were able to hit that without the CHP, I believe we were not hitting the energy use intensity targets. So okay. uh, the CHP actually allowed us to hit those targets. I don't hmm. think they would allow us to hit V3 tier two. Okay. Um, what's interesting about CHP though, is it depends a lot on what the grid intensity is. Yeah. And this I'm learning and I'm by no means an expert. So I wanna just make that clear for everybody. I'm a lay person with an interest on this front. Uh, the grid intensity is a conversation that I find is, is very, very loose here. Um, one of the best white papers I've come across, and I actually brought it but forgot to take it out of my bag, is a paper that the, the Atmospheric Fund put together. Okay. And it's called something about quantifying the, the grid intensity of Ontario. Yes. And they explain what the average intensities are, which is a very low number. Yes. It's a very clean grid. Yeah. Uh, but then they go into what the marginal emissions factors are and saying if you're going to add a kilowatt to the grid, what's the actual generator that's going to be bingo right and when you start looking at marginal intensities it's still a clean clean grid yeah. but it's it's a very different story yeah um so if you look at that all of a sudden the chp starts making a little bit more sense and then the other thing that they do there is they look and say well what's the forecast we know that our grid based on current political trends and what uh, the appetites that we've seen as a province we know it's getting dirtier we know that pickering is coming offline yes and we know that as we're adding more capacity, there's no more hydro to be done. Right. I, I don't think that solar and wind are really going to be covering that gap as much no, as it would be nice if they could. Yes. Uh, so it's going to be coming down to natural gas. And they've forecasted out what those marginal trends look like in terms of, I think, up to 2035. And we see an, a bit of an inflection point that, based on that forecast, at around 2030, uh, it becomes cleaner to use CHP than the grid. Uh -huh. So that's, yeah. now, that's a forecast. It could yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. And I know that there's some people who have challenged the methodology they've used. Yes. Like I said, I'm not an expert, but it's yeah. an interesting, nuanced conversation. Yeah. Um, and so we found two things. One, we can run that CHP depending on time of day that we run it. Yeah. It can be carbon benefit. The other thing is today it might not be the best solution for, from a carbon perspective, but as we're dirtying that grid up, it is becoming more and more attractive yeah. down the road. Uh, and then the last thing, and this is more of a holistic district energy type of, of mentality that I think anybody in the sector would agree with, uh, to start off to establish a thermal network is key. Yeah. And so the big question is always, how do we make the economics work to establish that thermal network? Yeah. Once we have that, right. there's all sorts of things we can do. We can start adding renewables, we can start adding solar, we can start adding storage, we can look at hydrogen fuel cells and start replacing it with biogas. Uh, but you have to have the economics to establish that thermal network, and that's what we were able to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without that thermal network, it's really hard to incorporate renewables right. down the road. So the timing of renewables is is fundamental in district energy, and that's what we were able to do with Norwich Village. We're now already talking with neighbors who've actually approached us, say, "Hey, we want to connect to your system, 
And as we're doing that, expanding team development there, it's really exciting because that's where we get to do a little bit more sophisticated and fun things such as looking at phase change technology for thermal storage or cool. looking at solar integration or yeah, nice. how do we integrate the electrical and the thermal and start using storage in a sense that's not your typical batteries. Yeah. Uh, or the one thing we did examine that is uh, didn't pan out in this case, but we're really eager to get it working is using EV as, as storage. If mm. we're gonna have all these cool. car batteries there connected nice. already, nice. can we actually use people's cars to store yeah. energy? And I actually think the next couple of years we're gonna be able to crack that nut. Yeah. Considering you brought up that piece about the atmospheric fund because, uh, and maybe it's linked, maybe it's not, we've always been fans of some work that um, Akil Zaidi of Enbridge Gas has done. Mm. He's, he's gonna be on one of our upcoming uh, episodes, but s similar thing, yep. looking, looking at the marginal, KW and and where's that coming from and you know it's it's similar to your story about um, you know how you framed that project for the the uh, school that I forget the name of already Thompson University yes University. the way you reframe that comparison is what Atmospheric Fund and what Enbridge are doing they're reframing the comparison yes if you take every KWH in the province and you look at the intensity of every KWH okay but in reality we are displacing you know gas on the margin. Right, if we put in cogeneration, uh, which is a higher cycle efficiency than, you know, the plants on the four one, for example, um, you know, that's what we're displacing. We're displacing those KWH, um, and then, you know, the other piece that, you know, we want to advocate for in terms of DG, particularly CHP, is the ancillary benefits. Right, you know, as our grid gets smarter, you know, that one megawatt that you have there, that Siemens machine, that's going to potentially have the ability to provide you know, VAR support or, you know, uh, other resiliency mm -hmm. beyond your property there out into the, the network, right, with Toronto Hydro. And, um, yeah, there's no way to, you know, make that, you know, financial compensation yet. But, you know, our hope is that that will come. And that's one of the, the benefits. And that's the trouble with CHP is there's benefits that are hard to, A, understand, you know, if you're not deep in the bug dust. And B, you know, they're they're harder to quantify and they're they're incremental in nature. But yeah, and the one thing I'll say is, so we're we're technologically agnostic. We right don't on. take a stance on what's the right technology. We look at every project as a blank slate and try to craft the best solution based on the what we're working with. Uh, so I, I'm not taking a stance on CHP one way or another. But there's no way to say that it is not one of the best things for resiliency. And so right, if we're defining that project as resiliency and affordability, yeah. CHP certainly checks those two boxes. Yeah. When you're looking at the carbon piece of it, yeah. it's it's questionable or potentially not great today, yeah. um, but there's certainly a case to be made down the road. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very nuanced conversation that I find that I find is not really talked about enough, especially at the grid intensity piece of it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like I said, I'm a layperson on this, but yeah. the, the one, and I want to say misconception, though I can't verify this 100%, <laughs> When I was talking to some of the folks who are really proponents of, of electrifying everything and going to the grid, which I, I actually think is a fantastic idea, but one of the things that I would hear over and over again is, in Ontario, you only use gas in the in the grid during the peaks, and that's it. And to me, that makes sense. It's, yeah, you have your nuclear, you have a hydro that covers your baseload, and the gas turned yes. on at the peaks. And when I actually sat down with the atmospheric fund, because I want to understand how they came up oh, with yeah. the white paper yeah. that unfortunately nobody reads, yeah, yeah. but I think it's a phenomenal paper, I questioned them on that. They said, that's intuitively what makes sense. That's not the reality. We yeah. actually looked hour by hour what generators turn on, and that is a fallacy to say that. So yeah. I haven't verified the data, but yeah. it's a really interesting, uh, what I think is a misconception. I don't know the rationale of why that happens, Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a very nuanced conversation yeah. that I don't think gets the attention. Well, and, I, and I think the reality is that, you know, whether it's nuclear or hydro or wind or solar, they are, to, to the masses, intuitive and easy to understand. Right, and so I, I think you know a gas plant has a terrible connotation to it, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's a lot harder to understand. And it's just we gravitate to what's easy, right? And so it's easy to understand that, and it's easy to be excited and think of like, and it markets well that hey, in Ontario, it's all clean energy, right? And, and that markets well, and and it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not right, but it's not wrong either. Um, and then we have an announcement like just recently where they extend the life of Pickering and that makes the whole thing mm. a little bit more confusing. Um, so what's... Well, and maybe just to yeah. cap that conversation, what's interesting too is if you say, let's take Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia, I don't think we're ever going to see the days where CHP makes sense in BC mm -hmm. except for biomass of a wood mill or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right on. You go to Alberta, I think CHP is probably one of the most sustainable things you can do because yes. if you have coal generation at the grid and now you're burning gas for, yes. for that, 
that, that's a that's a slam dunk. Well, and and that you bring up a topic that I was I was hoping to just like it's all unfortunately in our space a lot of life is relative, right? Like you talked about in the '60s, the late '60s, moving from coal to gas mm-hmm. was it was a really you know now in BC it's moving away from coal or moving yes. away from gas rather. Here in Ontario, same thing. We're moving you know we've we've essentially moved. You know, almost off of yep. gas, but we have some uh, infrastructure. But to your point, in 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 the you know in Alberta, particularly for us, that, that's our biggest area of business for the next foreseeable future, uh, because their frame of reference, like the business cases we talked about, is, is dirty. It's very dirty, and so you know we serve some some big utility clients out there who are just giddy about you know burning natural gas, and they're just unashamed. And and so yeah, it's. I, I don't think the, the economics are not like we can't leapfrog that step in development, right? Like I think it, even though the technology is there, it won't happen to go from coal to biomass in in Alberta or coal to RNG. It just it has to be kind of a step development. You have to go through the phases, I, I think. But I'm interested if you have a different opinion on that. Oh, and I couldn't agree more. So yeah. to me, uh, I think natural gas is a really good transition fuel. Yeah, I yeah. Really do. That's a good uh, term. I like and I, I think when people say natural gas is dirty, I, I don't think that's the right term for it because I think coal is dirty. I think natural gas, we ultimately have to get off of gas. I yeah. completely agree. But it's a matter of how we do that, yeah. how long it takes to do that. And at the end of the day, we're generally driven by economics. Bingo. Right. Yeah. And so if we want to say, say Ontario, if we really want to say no more natural gas in buildings, people are not going to voluntarily say we want to pay more for our rates. Right. right. And so we have to have government come in and put in policy that drives economics. And that's where I think the carbon tax is going to be really, really big. Yeah. Right. That's a that's a dial that you can earn and crank up and try to, to mix the markets up a little bit. Well, what do you make of this? You know this thought floating around that well carbon tax, but you got to get to a big number, a three-digit number, before you drive change. You, mm-hmm. you, you subscribe to that notion that we we got to get to one hundred, one hundred fifty dollars a ton before we're going to see any substantial change in behavior. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to that notion okay. at all. Okay. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because I don't think that it's going to be uh, one or the other. I, I think mm. it's very transitionary. And so if we run an economic model, we're looking at a project. Um, generally, we'll start off with we want to do something very sustainable. However, we're bound by economics and have to work with our development partners or customers to understand what that looks like. Yeah, we'll model out two different scenarios, and there's certain things, particularly when we're looking at scale, that we can leverage leverage the economy of scale to make yeah. some more sustainable electric-based solutions work um, or bring the cost down. But that cost of gas might still be cheap. Yeah, and so we find that by say 2022, when it goes up to fifty dollars a ton. All of a sudden, uh, I think here, I did the math the other day, it goes from roughly 22 or $23 a megawatt hour to $30 a megawatt mm. hour. All of a sudden, there's all sorts of, of strategies we would look at that before it yeah. would not have actually panned out, and now the economics pencil in. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's going to be quite that binary. I do think it's going to be a little bit more analog yeah, yeah, in terms okay. of how we transition. So um, in our office, we talk a lot about a post-carbon plan. Mm-hmm. And, and what we, post-carbon is maybe not, it, it's a nice term, but there, we'll still be burning carbon. It's just a matter of, is it in the existing carbon cycle? Or are we pulling it out of the ground? Sure. But we're thinking about things like RNG mm-hmm. and, and biomass and biogas and hydrogen. Um, what does Creative Energy's post-carbon? Because you're you're coming out of a Vancouver framework. You're here. You must be thinking and, and plotting and kind of dreaming about you know what those technologies or those plans are. Can you share with us some of the stuff that you have? Um, on the radar, even you're starting to think about in terms of the next wave of either fuels or technologies. Yeah, and, and I might break it down to two things. So I think one of them is not the next wave. One of them is what we're doing today. Yes. and I can point to a couple projects where it is mostly post carbon. Yes, uh, and we're making it work. So I can show that. And then what we're doing, say, at the down the road, yeah, what, yeah, we're, yeah. what we're starting to salivate over in terms yeah. of me and my, my engineering cohort saying, if we can't wait for this to become technically or commercially viable. Uh, but just today, what we have in development, if you look at Oak Ridge in, West, in Vancouver, yes. so that's a, a site that's being developed. It's about 14 towers and 5 million square feet of, of real estate. Okay, cool. Wow. We're developing the district energy there, and we're meeting the low carbon requirements of the city of Vancouver. Okay. Um, and I, I could get this wrong, but I think it's four or six kilograms per meter square per, per year. Okay. Uh, and just to give you context, if you were to go meet the next iteration of the Toronto Green Standard here and hit tier two, it's at 15. So wow, just, wow. and, and yeah. we're not even there today. So, yeah. so just to give you that sort okay. of that gap. Yeah. Um, so by all 
definitely. I mean, it's aggressive. Yeah, it's a very aggressive, and we're halfway in the development right now. We're making it work. We've got a large geothermal component. Cool. We've got okay. some electric resistant boilers for for some carbon dosing. We've got some conventional gas as well. Okay. Um, but we're doing that today, and that is a. I think we're looking at 30 megawatts of capacity on wow. heating and cooling okay. and low carbon. Cool. Another project that's, that, and I, I really like this project from a technological perspective, a little bit smaller, but if you look in West Vancouver, yes. there's a Horseshoe Bay development, which is about seven buildings in a small resort village. Okay. Uh, what we're doing there, we actually we purchased, and we have it in a shop right now, we've purchased a heat ex- or two heat exchangers that are probably the size of this room. Yeah. We are sinking them to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. They're going to land on the ocean floor and live there. We're putting piping on the seabed, bringing it up to the building, tying it to an array of heat pumps, and we're extracting, the numbers vary, we don't know exactly yet, but we're thinking potentially up to 50 to 90% of the thermal energy will be from the ocean. Okay. And so our natural gas boiler is only there for peak heating. No way. And to do a little bit of lift on domestic hot water because of a temperature differential. Yes. Um, And we have no cooling tower there because the Pacific Ocean is our cooling tower. Wow, cool. And so that is, that project's in construction right now. So that's why I'm saying it's not far out in terms of the post carbon future. We're seeing it today. Yeah, Uh, awesome. What we are starting to see, I think, more to your question in terms of future technologies, what's coming down the pipeline, we're really excited about advancements in thermal storage. Okay. That's, yeah. I think that is going to be one of the biggest things. Uh, and I think the conversation, at least publicly, everybody thinks batteries when they think thermal storage. I just, I, I think we have to stop that thinking. Yeah. Uh, they certainly have a big role to play, but yes. there's all sorts of things out there, whether it's ice storage. Uh, yeah. The new technology I'm really excited about that we're seeing in Asia, we're seeing it in the States, uh, a little bit in Europe, and we're looking at a project, see if we can implement it. Hasn't been done in Canada is phase change materials. Yeah, uh, cool. Which is essentially engineered polymers that will freeze and melt at yes. temperatures you design to. So you get that latent thermal storage without having to get to sub-freezing temperatures like you would with ice. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing flywheels now for thermal energy storage. We're seeing- Thermal energy with a flywheel? Or sorry, uh, electrical energy storage. Okay, yes, 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 electrical energy. sure, yeah. We're seeing, and I'm sure you guys are, have seen this project, I think it's in Ontario, where they're looking at uh, compressed air. Hydrostorage, yeah. yeah, hydro yeah. Uh, obviously there's, there's pumped hydro, yep. uh, but there is all sorts of different technologies yeah. out there. And I think the more we start integrating thermal and electrical systems together, yeah. the more we're going to get uh, flexibility on how we store energy. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the most conventional example is if electricity is cheap at night, yeah. go run a chiller, proves ice, and then you've got ice for the next day. Yeah. You just stored, it's really storing electrical energy in a sense. Yep. Right? And so that's where I think the conversation is going, what we're really excited about. Yeah. Uh, and then the other technologies is hydrogen, obviously, that's one sure. we're excited about, yeah. seeing batteries come down in price a little bit. Yeah. Uh, that's that's probably what we're seeing. And then as heat pumps are becoming better every day, I really think that heat pumps are going to take over the world Yeah. Uh, mm. from a thermal perspective. Yeah. So seeing yeah. the advancements there are cool. what I think we're most excited about. Yeah, we, we do a, we're doing a project right now up in Timmins at the at the hospital there, and they they were one of the, in Ontario at least, one of the pioneers in ice storage. They have an ice storage system there that we've gotten a little bit close to from an audit perspective and yeah it's pretty elegant like it's pretty simple it, it is. Um, but it drives it drives results right and uh, so yeah it's an what I always tell people is it's a really exciting time to be you know in the industry it's challenging it's complex but it's uh, it's pretty exciting too yeah and just back to the point too about the Mervish Village the thermal network yes. one of the things that uh, and I don't know if I, you or any of your viewers prescribe to uh, Ray Kurzweil and have ever seen his sort of theory of the way technology evolves okay that as technology builds on itself it's exponential and so uh-huh. uh, the rate of advancement is not linear it's going to okay. be going up astronomically but what that means is that what we might think is the, the latest and greatest today is going to start changing quicker and quicker and quicker. Yeah. And so having the ability to establish a thermal network that's flexible so then as hydrogen all of a sudden becomes economical or we yeah. see PCMs really taking off or uh, compressed uh, compressed air, whatever it might be, we have that infrastructure there to actually mix and match different technologies and have that fuel flexibility. Yeah. Um, and I think fundamentally from a district energy perspective, forget about us and creative, just yeah. the district energy value, I think one of the big things is that flexibility and nowhere has it been done better than in Europe. You yeah. Know, look at Copenhagen right. and you've got these, you know, we, we get to brag about 14 kilometers of piping, which yeah. I think is the biggest or the second biggest in all of uh, Canada. Okay. Uh, if you go there, they've got 100 kilometers of piping in their yeah. cities, and they've yeah. got waste heat from garbage somewhere, one waste heat from a tomato plant somewhere, they've got renewable, it's, that's really where I think things get interesting. Cool, yeah, yeah, and it, I think there's a lot of fuss, and maybe this is an Ontario thing, because we've always been an electricity province, not a, 
we haven't really looked at energy from a holistic perspective. But there's lots of, you know, talk about how the grid is getting, the electrical grid is getting more complicated and smarter and diverse and you have you know, DERs or DGs or whatever, you know, acronym you want to throw at it. But you raise a great point, you know, we also need to be thinking about that flexibility and a smart thermal grid, right? And, and you know, it's, it's maybe less sexy than the electricity side for some, not for, not for us, but, you know, for some, but that, you know, on a cold winter day like we have today, you know, we gotta we gotta start start thinking about that kind of stuff, right? Now. Absolutely, and I, I'm I'm a prescriber that I think, uh, if we want to call it our issue, and it's not really an issue, but Canada's always had access to very affordable energy. Yes, right. And so right. you can look at Copenhagen, which I think 97 percent of their heating is through a district system and a thermal network. Yeah, I don't think that they wanted to be the the leaders because it's a nice thing to do. I think they had no choice. They right. had expensive energy. They had coal. They had density. They said this is what makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah. I think as carbon policies change and the you know the Greta Thunbergs of the world become more more popular. Yes, and people actually start caring. I yeah. think that we're going to start seeing Canada go that way as well uh, and just uh, three weeks ago I think CBC posted an article on district energy which mm, to me is wow, you know, cool. wow, this is really going mainstream if yeah, you have know, yeah. Canadian broadcast uh, yeah. corporation yeah. doing that yeah and it's it's tough like we're, it's a bit of an uphill battle right because it's not it's not you know AI it's not virtual reality it's not you know big tech it's not sexy but it's essential right? it's, yeah. it's what we need well it's funny it's just going back to the beginning of our conversation you were talking about us as engineers we don't really get taught on some of the soft skills and yes, yes. and this is uh, probably my blind spot as an engineer I think it's all those things I think it is yeah. <laughs> you're right though uh, I go home and talk to my other half and tell her about everything we do she right. she humors me cause right, she's nice, right, she right. yes I understand um, but yeah it's not sexy event but to me I think right. it's the coolest thing in the world agreed agreed cool well uh, this has been fun I appreciate um you making time for us. Uh, we, we could probably sit here and, and talk all day about this, I think. Um, what's the best way for people to you know, find you or, or begin a dialogue with creative? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, so the way to find me, which is probably easiest, I, I'm not a huge social media guy except for LinkedIn. I okay. do have that. Yeah, right so on. look me up on LinkedIn, uh, either Creative Energy or myself or both. Okay. Send me a message. We're very happy to talk. Cool. Uh, and then the other one is through our website. We'll show our projects there, show the way that we do work, uh, just some explanatory things in terms of what district energy is. Yeah. Uh, and we're we're here to stay, so we're cool. really excited to see what yeah. we get off the ground here, and it's yeah. very fast. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was really fun. It was uh, good to chat with somebody who's thinking about the same things and struggling with the same things as us, and, and at the same time. It's clear you have a, a passion for this, so, so this, this was fun. Thank you very much, Diego. Thanks for having me. First time yeah. being on a podcast. There we go. Uh, you did. You did great. Uh, you, you have a future in it for sure. So, uh, Joe Rogan next. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Set the sights high. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, thank you to all of our uh, our listeners and, and and those who are viewing. Um, we just appreciate you. And so this was uh, episode fourteen of Energy Radio, and uh, been a pleasure to chat with Diego. And uh, hope you enjoyed it.